Welcome to Flowcast, a podcast of the Dominican Sisters of Springfield. We talk with people who change the world in hopeful ways. I'm Sister Beth Murphy. Today, I'm with Dr. Wendy Wills Elamine and my own Dominican sister, Marceline Cook. Dr. Elamine is the Associate Dean for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. She teaches and practices family and community medicine and brings a heart for service, justice, and healing to everything she does. Sister Marceline directs the Office of Justice for the Dominican Sisters of Springfield and serves as the co-coordinator of the Springfield Dominican Anti-Racism Team, among her many other responsibilities. She also volunteers with the Springfield Coalition on Dismantling Racism and the Springfield Immigrant Advocacy Network, which connect local efforts on dismantling racism and supporting immigrants. All of that in addition to educating and animating Dominican sisters around the nation in the struggle for a more just and peaceful world. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking you to say a little bit about your role in your organization's anti-racism efforts. And Dr. Elamine, if you want to start and just describe a little bit more for our audience what that really is that you're doing. Sure. So I'm the Associate Dean of Equity, Diversity, Inclusion at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. I've been in this position for almost four years now. And our dean has declared that we would be an anti-racist institution. And so my work is really in multiple areas. One, making sure that we are creating increased levels of access for marginalized communities. It also means that we are doing our best to reduce the bias that's within our curriculum and also creating spaces for people to feel welcome and have a deep sense of belonging especially those that are from marginalized communities. I think that this work is probably my most significant work as a, as a physician. I've played multiple roles, and this has been the role that has actually stretched me the most and the role that I feel like I'm able to reduce the most health inequities. We're going to ask more questions about that. You've intrigued me. Sister Marceline, how about you? Would you give, give us a summary of your work? Well, as you said, I'm the director of our Office of Justice, and I also co-coordinate our anti-racism team. Our team was started in 2004, and it's been quite a journey for us. We refer to it as SDART, Springfield Dominican Anti-Racism Team. And in co-coordinating that, I, along with someone from the team of color, work together to plan our meetings, bring folks together, and look at how we can look at our congregation and be accountable to people of color. Dr. Elamine said that the med school has made the commitment to become an anti-racist institution. That was our commitment back in 2005 when we had our, what we call our chapter. It's our congregational meeting that's decision-making, and we agreed that our anti-racism team would help us to be on the journey to become an anti-racist congregation. And so I have been co-coordinating the team since it began. 
and it is challenging and it is rewarding. And I see Dr. Elamine nodding her head. It is both of those things. And our goal today is to share, I think in a practical way, um, what that really means. When we are on the inside of this movement, words like equity and bias are clear to us, but I'm not sure that they're clear to everyone to understand exactly what those mean. Would one of you want to talk about equity? I'm always going to oblige the sister, but if you would like for me to speak first. <laughs> Go right ahead, Wendy. Sure. You know, it's it's interesting <laughs> is that we've really developed a new language around inclusion. And it's, I feel like every year it's evolving and that's good. You know, we're, we're in a journey. I was telling our medical students, it used to be that individuals were called incarcerated, but now we call them justice involved people. You know, we're humanizing the experience that people have, and we're not trying to strip them of their identity and going back to this first person language. And when I think about equity, when I was coming through medical school, we really didn't talk about equity. We talked about equality and equality was more of what the word means equal. We give everybody the same thing. So when I have medical students and physicians that come in and say, I treat all my patients the exact same, I'm trying to get them to understand that we need to move beyond that because not everybody is going to have the same needs. And equity is giving people exactly what they need to get where they need to be. So for example, last weekend we were out and we were doing school physicals at a church. We did about 67 school physicals because we needed to come into the community and create a higher level of access for individuals who didn't have to take off from work, who might've had three, four, five children and that is an equitable practice to be able to say, um, we're going to give people what they need. I think you've described it very well. When I see the equity and equality piece, I'm always reminded of the, that diagram, the picture of the three young people trying to see over the fence to the ball game. And equality gives each one the same size of a stool to see. Well, the shortest person still can't see. The tallest person has a better view even. And so equity is giving them the size of the school stool that will allow them to see over the fence, all of them. And then even in some descriptions of that, someone said, we need to take away the fence. We need to take away the barriers. And that's part of what equity does. It's trying to take away those barriers that keep people from accessing what they need or having the opportunity for what they, as human persons in our society, ought to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think both of you have painted a clear picture of what that is. And equity is one aspect of what we call institutionalized racism, um, trying to reach an equitable, I'll use the word playing field for everyone is our goal. But how do we define what institutional or structural racism is? Um, Sister Marceline, maybe you want to start with that. We use the 
framework. We don't call it a definition. And we use the framework from our training organization, which is Crossroads Organizing and Training. And the framework that we use is that racism is race prejudice plus the misuse of power by systems and institutions. You hear that more in society these days, talking about systemic racism, and also some pieces about that power. What Crossroads brings to the conversation is the misuse of power. You know, we know that our institutions are needed. Dr. Elamine is in the institution of healthcare. That's a very necessary institution. And so what, when we talk about racism, we're trying to work to dismantle racism so that the institution in its creating, managing, and, um, and giving out resource, distributing resources, does it in a way that keeps everybody able to access it. Often our institutions advantage some folks and disadvantage others. That's been our practice for so long in our country, and that's what we're trying to work against. Dr. Elamine, you mentioned when you started um, that one of your jobs is to create welcoming space for people. Can you share an example of how you do that? Because I think that's a good example of what it means to dismantle racism within an institution and to use power uh, not power over, but power for others. And when I think about welcoming spaces, I think the first thing is that we really want people to have a sense of trust. And um, we recently, in one of our retreats, worked through the book, The Thin Line of Trust. And it talks about there are mm. these four elements of trust. Um, and one is sincerity. Um, I'm going to see if I can remember them all. One is reliability, that you can trust the person is always going to be there. Another one is that the person cares. And then also that there's a level of competence. So if one of those elements is missing, it actually erodes away at trust. And that erodes away of that sense of belonging. And we try to focus on psychological safety because in our field, we have to have people in their frontal lobes and really thinking at their highest level. And when people don't feel that this is a place that they own, that this is a place where they belong, especially in healthcare, then it reduces the ability for us to get the information that we need from them to be able to heal them. I think another example when we think about welcoming spaces is that being in medical school is, is an opportunity. It's a privilege. You know, we want everybody to be able to have access to that opportunity. But if you think about it, if you have an admissions that is solely based on a standardized test and not everybody has had that opportunity to get Kaplan, the opportunity to get the same education, then some people are going to be left out. And that's not the only marker of success for a physician. So one of the things that we do is, yes, we do look at the MCAT, but we have a holistic approach so that we're reducing some of those systemic barriers that could keep somebody out of medical school. The other thing that we do is we have started to focus on training on implicit bias because there could be bias in the selection process. And many times people are just not aware of it. And so we try to use the language of 
uh, many times people, when they come to our equity response team, they say, Dr. Elamine, that's not what I intended. That's not what I intended. And, you know, I'm able to gently say uh, it's not about the intent. It's about the impact. Mm-hmm. And if your intent does not match the impact, uh, we have a problem. And we have to remember that impact always trumps intent. So I don't think people were intending to do the harm that they were doing. Um, another one that has really come around this year is uh, really trying to change from race-based medicine to race-conscious medicine. And many people are not aware that some of the biases that started many, many, many years ago are still embedded in our algorithms that impact outcome. So for example, when someone gets a kidney test, that kidney test is different for black people versus white people. When it comes to the lab, it's different. And so recently we have removed that number. And what that means is that people who had kidney disease that were African-American may not even get on the transplant list until it's too late because of this marker. Now we've removed it. There are about 14 different markers that are different based on race. And people are so surprised. Even physicians are surprised. They didn't teach us this in medical school. You know, so that's a system that we're able to make a change with. So are you saying that um, those markers have ended up embedded in your electronic electronic medical record? Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes, that's nationally. And right now there's lots of different debates on um, it, it. It's that way for the pulmonary function test. Is that way when we're looking at children with urinary tract infections? And so now that we've had this racial reckoning, medicine has really started to have a critical eye on different markers that we've had that have just kind of moved on. So I think that we're really going to be able to see some changes and some differences happening. And this is something that's constantly evolving. But what we understand is that race is not, there's no science behind race. Uh, Race is a social construct. You know, I think everybody who's done ancestry DNA is like, what, what, what is going on? You know, I know I had plenty of surprises, but I think that we understand that to say someone is black or white, there's so many mixtures that could happen in there that the reason why we're seeing some of these disparities are really social reasons. They're not, you know, it has nothing to do with the race. There are social reasons where somebody lives what somebody is eating, what access they have to education, the type of education that they have received. That is 80% of healthcare, and that is impacted by race. That is impacted by racism in many terms. So that's why we have to make sure that we're looking at things holistically and really teaching this in medical school. That is a stark example that I think should bring home to our listeners just how deeply embedded the social construct of race is in ways that are life-threatening to people. Sister Marceline is not dealing with the health care of people in her anti-racism work. More on, we, we might say, the spiritual health, or we work with our uh, sponsored institutions, our high schools, to try to help them do that same thing that you're talking about doing in the medical field. So Sister Marceline, would you be able to talk a little bit about what trying to create equity 
an understanding of bias and welcoming space looks like either in our high schools or or at Sacred Heart Convent where we employ many people. Can I interrupt for just one second before she gets started? Please. You said that sister is not involved in healthcare. I want to go back to a little bit of a story. Well, I think one of the ways that SIU School of Medicine became an anti-racist institution is that she actually bought Crossroads to Springfield, Illinois. And coming to, you know, we as faculty, I remember the first time I went, I've had, I think I've had to go five times. I think you've seen me in there a lot because each time I'm like, whoa. And so I went, Dr. McNeese went, Dr. McNeese actually took it back to our school and our dean, Dr. Cruz, had all of our top key faculty to go through Crossroads and it really started developing a shared language and it created a pivotal shift in the work that we're doing. And so she is doing healthcare work. Well, and thank you for that good reminder. Yes. I had forgotten that part of it. That's a big part, you know, so that shows, you know, you never know, you might be in one area, but that, you know, one of my daughters calls it the butterfly effect. The butterfly flaps the wings and you feel it kind of everywhere. And that's why it's so important that when we're getting information that we're sharing it and we're doing it in an interdisciplinary way. Thank you for reminding me. I can remember you on your first anti-racism training. It was here at the convent. I remember that very, very, very distinctly. You know, as we've done this work in our congregation, our goal is to been looking at ourselves and saying, what kind of policies do we have? What kind of practices do we have that exclude others? Procedures, whatever you want to call it. And that's what we're trying to do is how can we make any of those accountable to persons of color? Uh, We've looked at our hiring, but we don't have sisters of color, at least when we started our team. We didn't have sisters of color in the United States. We have sisters in Peru. And so in order to be true to this work, to be authentic, we invited persons of color that we knew from the larger community, Springfield, Chicago area, and Jackson, Mississippi. And it's wonderful. I cannot begin to say how significant their presence is with us because you can't do this work alone. So we have learned to look at things and be challenged by our partners of color to say, okay, How are you doing hiring? Well, where do you advertise? What kinds of descriptions do you put there? They challenged us to look at our policy directives. How do you describe employees or what you expect from them? So we've had them look at our policy, a handbook policy for our coworkers to say, is there something in here that is biased language? that we wouldn't even be aware of. Those are, you know, the kinds of pieces that we have to be challenged to look at and to see where we want to go from there. I remember this would have been over 10 years ago when we were going to do some building. And at that time, Leroy Jordan, a happy memory for sure, was my co-coordinator with our team. And he said to me, 
how are you going to do construction differently now that you're doing anti-racism work? And I looked at him and said, I don't know. What does that mean? And he said, well, let's talk about it. And so he came in and, and we talked about it as leadership in our community leadership. And so we developed a, an agreement that we would do with our construction folks that we were hiring. So it's using that lens for everything that we are about. We often say in our community, we have the lens of anti-racism. We also have the lens of sustainability for care for the earth. But we're learning anymore. All of these things fit together. They fit together so much. I was just thinking about this. You know, when you talk about care for the earth, you can also talk about environmental racism. There's just so many connections there. And that's another piece of what we've learned in all of this. As we've done our anti-racism work and looked at the power that racism has in our society, what does it say about all of these other issues that we're, um, that we're trying to address as well? I love that you brought up the concept of environmental justice. I was recently doing a fellowship at the Erickson Institute in Chicago, and they had us to visit a daycare for half a day. And I went outside with the kids and all of a sudden I heard this really, really, really loud noise. I mean, it scared me to death. I, I mean, like I just didn't know what was going on. And none of the kids moved. That Nobody got alarmed except for me. And I looked and it was a huge train that was right next to the children's place. And now what we know about vibrations and trains and how it affects sleep, you start to think about, well, these children were not even bothered by that. And it was just, uh, that right there is environmental justice. So where we build buildings, where we put our pollution, we need to make sure that, you know, it's not inside of a marginalized community and that um, people have the education that they need to be able to truly protect themselves. So that's another word, you know, we talked about equality, equity, and justice, and justice means to make right. How do we make this right? And what both of you are talking about is the transformative work of anti-racism. Uh, that has to happen intentionally and on some level every day in every institution in order to bring it about. Um, I'd like to go back, Sister Marceline, you mentioned that when Leroy came to you and said, how are you going to do your construction project differently uh, now that you're doing anti-racism work? You said, we made an agreement with our construction company, but I'd like to hear that articulated. What was the agreement and how did that make a real difference? The agreement was really very simple, and I know that sometimes the federal government has agreements on this too, but our agreement was we stated our position, uh, and we asked the construction folks to make sure that they had a diverse workforce, and then each week they were to let us know about the diversity in their workforce. We didn't give them a particular number or anything like that. We just said, this is what we're looking for. And interestingly, 
the overall construction company asked for a copy of it because they wanted to use it with their subcontractors. And actually, uh, a gentleman, a friend of our community who was helping us with this project was also working with one of the the colleges in town, and he asked for a copy of it to use it in their work as well. So when you talk about the butterfly effect, I just think, you know, when something happens here and it moves out into other places, that's that's the wonderful piece of this. It's like a movement that's going to happen and make things better. So the stories that you have just shared um, from Dr. El Amin, it's um, changing the way health markers are monitored. On your end, it's making an agreement with a construction company. And both of those things begin to transform the systematic part of systematic racism. So that's what we mean by that. It is slow work. And I know just from observing, it is sometimes frustrating work. So I'd like the two of you to talk about maybe one or two of your most hopeful experiences, um, either of your own personal transformation or or the transformation of the institutions that you are serving. Well, thinking about that, I think this is partly me, but it's partly our team. It's partly our YesStar team. I mentioned earlier about the partners who have joined us, especially our partners of color. The depth of relationship and trust and their generosity is humbling, very humbling. And when we started this work and they saw their part was their accountability was to help us to be on this path. And our accountability was to get moving on the path. And it took us time to build up that trust among ourselves and that relationship. And I was on our leadership team at the time when we started. And so when um, they would say to us, you know, well, what about this? Well, how are you doing this? Well, we noticed this. It took us time and... I guess time and and in and in going inside ourselves to hear that without being defensive. And so, you know, as people, anybody who starts this work and, and somebody uh, says to you, you know, corrects you or critiques you, the first thing you have to really work to do is not to use the discomfort to disengage. And we didn't disengage. They wouldn't let us, and we didn't want to disengage. And we kept meeting. And what was what's transformative about that is that we used our honest, transparent communication to build relationship and trust so that we can have these conversations, and then our congregation can take steps to make the changes that, that are suggested and that we see that we need to make to help dismantle racism in our time? Um, One of the things that I think about is at SIU School of Medicine, our president over all of the university, SIU Edwardsville and Carbondale, um, said that he wanted each group, each college to actually have an anti-racism task force. And something that was very transformative for me is that 
all the people who said yes and the levels of people who said yes offer that anti-racism task force. So our task force probably has 40 individuals from everybody from the CFO to chairs of departments to students to staff and the dialogue that we are having and the solutions and how we've really created a structure of a metric subcommittee training and organizational analysis and policies and procedures is really been a transformative framework. But I would even say with myself, I feel like I have really transformed. That's why I had to go to the Crossroads program five times because each time I learned so much about how I was moving in the world and how I was raising my children. And I think that anti-racist work happens in the micro moments, not the big moments always, but it's the micro moments when a teacher sends something home and you have to go and have a conversation and say, you know what, I, I, I think this might actually harm my child. And can we think about it this way? And the teacher's like, oh, I never thought about that before. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. I, I didn't think about that. Those to me are the transformations that make the most difference because it's all about being proximate. If you're not proximate, then you are not going to know what's really going on. And Springfield, Illinois, you know, is, has the highest segregation index, you know, in the United States. So we are not proximate to people. We have to have that intentionality. So I always tell people, look at what's, who's in your telephone book, in your, in your phone. How many of those people are from different races, from different groups, from different religions to just understand? Because if they're not, you don't, you don't really know the full picture. You know, I always think of that saying, where you stand determines what you see. And then what you see is going to determine where you stand. So when you stretch out what you see, when you widen that tent, you can stand in so many different places and it makes such a difference. And I love how you said the discomfort. I've never been so uncomfortable in my entire life. And I'm from Texas. I've been deep in a lot of stuff. and this is the hardest work. Like I do believe years have taken been taken off of my life because I chose to do this work. This is not a healthy thing to do. It is uncomfortable every single day, but I'm a spiritual person and that's what allows me to step in with courage and uh, faith that there's a different outcome that we can have for the next generation of children. You know, as you say that, and I shared this with our sisters at one time, <clears throat> I received a letter from somebody who was complaining that it was there was an article in the newspaper and I commented because it had been about immigration and I talked about racism with that. And he said um, in the letter, every time a liberal doesn't like something, they yell racism. And what I've learned to respond to that is anti-racism work is not the liberal agenda, it's the gospel agenda. It's the gospel agenda. And so that's what I carry with me. I look at how, in, for my tradition, our tradition as a Christian tradition, I look at what Jesus said and did, and it fits. It fits. I, I think that one of the things people, you know, people always say, well, what can I do? What, what you know, where, where do I go? We have to recognize that this takes time. There's something called an intercultural developmental inventory. Um, and there's five different steps. And they say it takes 50 hours to get from one step to the next step. And that shows you the cadence of anti-racism and anti-oppression work is slow. 
Because if all of a sudden we're going to have a quick fix and we're just going to snap, there's going to be no sustainability. But it's when you have that pressure that is applied that creates that sustainability. But I think everyone should do the Harvard Implicit Association test. You could Google that. They have it on race and skin color. I remember, the, and it's anxiety provoking because you don't want it to come up to say that you have these biases. The first time I did it, I had three little girls that are three different complexions. I was like, oh my gosh, I hope it doesn't show that I have this. You know, So it's anxiety provoking. Um, and there's even an intersectionality score that you can do. So there's lots of little things that can raise your own personal awareness, but ask other people how they perceive you. Just don't think that you know who you are. Ask other people how they perceive you, people that would really tell you the truth. Because unless somebody's showing you where your blind spots are, you're not going to know where your biases are. And what you're saying, it takes humility to do this work. You yes. Know, you, don't, you don't have all the answers and you won't have all the answers and you make mistakes along the way. What I always tell people too is to, to read, to educate yourself. There's just so much in books, articles, and videos now that you know that you can learn from uh, folks of color who will share their experiences. And the other thing is history. I think that we're not taught all true history. We're taught a nice story, but there's so much history that we don't know. So if you can seek out ways to learn, what is the history of, the, of our slavery, the history of the Native Americans, the history of immigrants from other countries, that how they were treated? It's very significant. And I also think having those intergenerational dialogues mm -hmm. are really important. Uh, I recently went home to Texas and we were sitting at the table and uh, we were talking about having gone to the beach and my aunts were like, you know, we never were allowed to even go to that side of the beach when we grew up. We were only allowed to go on this side of the beach. And my cousins and I were like, we never knew the beach. The beach was segregated too where we were. And so just sitting there was an eye-opening experience. And I'm like, why have I not had these conversations with them about this? But the pain is so deep for them. They never brought it up and we never thought to ask about it. So this beautiful picture got painted in our heads that was not the truth. So we have to really, um, they talk about narrative work and listening to those stories, narrative medicine. And really they have found the one thing that changes individuals. It's not really all the data and the facts, but it's when the data has a story and a person and a human behind it. That's when things change. I can vouch for that. I know that's true. Both of you have exceeded my expectations. I was going to jump in on that last question. How can our listeners begin this journey for themselves? And you have given us lots of really practical tools. So all of those will be in the show notes at our website, flowcastlisten.org is where you will find this episode. And uh, the resources that Sister Marceline and Dr. Elamine have shared with us will be shared on that page. And they've given you, um, I think, plenty of food for thought and good ways to get started in your own anti-racist journey. I just want to say thank you so very much, Sister Marceline and Dr. El. I mean, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I'm sure it will be enlightening and encouraging for many of our listeners. 
Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, it's wonderful to see you, Wendy. Thank you. You as well. Thank you for listening to Flowcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, there are more just like it available wherever you get your podcasts or at flowcastlisten.org. Thanks to our engineer, Brandon Durham. I'm Sister Beth Murphy. Until next time, know that you are blessed.